Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Thomas Samuelson is the founder of Braun, a social network marketplace for investors and listed companies. Tom has a diverse 30-plus year career in finance and capital markets, including asset management and investment banking. Tom is recognized by his peers as an expert in developing market economies and traveling extensively through Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. He's a graduate of Columbia University and is a guest lecturer at NYU Stern Business School. Welcome to the program, Tom. Thanks, Corey. Glad to be here. So listen, I mean, I think people are going to really be interested in what we're talking about in terms of your bio, because unlike some folks I have on the program, it may not be obvious to everybody exactly what you do. But before we get there and have you talk about that in detail, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because uh, like most folks, I doubt it's what you're doing now, but you tell me. No, actually, I'll I tell, tell a funny story. I've told this before. I remember I, it must have been. It must have been when I was eight or nine years old. I was. I, was, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, and uh-huh. uh, I went to a private school. And my grandparents would drive me to school every day. And I remember sitting in the car one day, and I had the newspaper, and I think I think it was the New York Times. I'm not sure. And I said to my grandfather, "Oh, and this is in the '70s, obviously." I said, "Oh, you should buy the stock Exxon." And I, I that that ingrains him. Like I've never forgot that moment. He's like, "Oh, really?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." And I I was looking at the stock pages when I was eight or nine years old. And I couldn't tell you what I wanted to be. I guess like every kid, I wanted to be a sports guy. I ended up playing college football. So I wanted to be a pro football player sure. ever since I was, I was tiny. But I always had this interest in stocks for some reason and investment. It was crazy. Even back Interesting. Then. What, what had you recommend Exxon? To say? <laughs> it was the 70s. So I guess it was inflation. I have no idea. Well, I remember it was, you know, that back in the 70s, you had the, the gas line. So I guess as a kid, sure, so sure. the gas lines, like I must have put two, two but I really know. Anyway, that's yeah, the little story, but I guess I wanted to be a pro football player. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so so many of us had sports dreams early on, you know, for sure. turned out to be not practical. All right, one more question looking back. What was the first deal of any type that you can remember doing? It could be something small as a young person or it could be early in your career, whatever, whatever comes to mind, that's a deal. Deal. I see my, for, how would you quantify a deal? Yeah, I mean, really anything that's, you know, so it's, so some people talk about, you know, their little business, you know, selling baseball, trading baseball cards or, you know, or, or it could be early in your career. I mean, you know, anything that was some sort of transaction that you might have remembered. Well, the, I guess the, the first deal I ever did was a personal deal. Okay. So I was, I got, a, I got out of school and I, I went into the Merrill Lynch training program sure. in finance. And I was, I was stationed down in the Philadelphia area mm-hmm. and I didn't like Philadelphia. Uh-huh. So I, I, 
I cut a deal and manufactured a deal to get myself in New York. So that's probably the first. There we go. All right. It was a hard negotiation because yeah. they, didn't want to, they didn't do things like that back then. But I was able to get that transfer and that changed my life in a sense. So that was my first negotiation deal, I guess you might call it. No, I mean, listen, that's a, that's definitely experience. And, and and listen, when you're in a, especially back then, but in you know, when you're in a big firm training program, you usually don't have a lot of leverage. So, well, you know, I'm sure, you know, that's why, that's why I, I, I meant it as the first deal sort of negotiation because it was not easy. Yeah. All right. So in your bio, it talks about a social network marketplace for investors and listed companies. Let's start at a very basic level. What is that? Okay. So it goes back to my, my career in, in, in finance and in Wall Street. I was a hedge fund manager, portfolio manager for a fund. And my strategy was international and mainly emerging markets. So I, I did a lot of traveling. I traveled to China all the time. I went to Brazil, Russia, South Africa, all these, Europe, I mean, everywhere, all over Asia. And it, it, was, it was great, but it, was, it, it got to be exhausting. But I also realized that there was a disconnect between companies that always, the companies always wanted to see investors. And the problem was that there was always a gatekeeper, right? It was the banks. The, the banks were uh, still today, are, they don't have as much grip as they used to, but they would, had an iron grip on what we call corporate access and all of this. So, and it was a very manual process. And, and it was very frustrating because if you wanted to do anything, if you wanted to visit a country, you always had to call a bank. Oh, hey, Joe Schmo, can you make some visits to me? I'm going here, I'm going there. They invite you to a conference, whatever. And I just found it to be over time to be just like I said to myself, technology's exploding. And this is still this, this old manual business. They've been doing business for 50 years. There's got to be a better way. Yeah. And so I originally had a video company, which started, a video, started as a video company, where I would connect buy side asset managers with companies overseas in Latin America, et cetera, in China. And it morphed into what is today, which is a social network community. So basically what that means is we we're like a bridge. Braun, by the way, is the, is a Swedish word for bridge. So we're the bridge between companies and investors, a direct bridge, right? So we mm -hmm. try to avoid the middleman. And using technology, using a platform, we we a lot of content. So public companies produce a lot of content that it very rarely gets to any investor. So what we do is we make it accessible to all all investors of all sizes. We have a number of different features, and we try to bring together investors and companies in a community-like feel because instead of a database or a website, it's, it has a look and feel of a social network. Mm. So that's why we call it a social network community because mm. it's, it's a lot different than your normal you know, type of ecosystem where you have companies and investors meeting. And so on the company side, these are all publicly listed companies in various 100%. places, right? Right. For now, it's all 100% public listed companies, yes. Okay. And then talk to us about the users on the investor side. So who are we talking about? We're talking institutions, we're talking funds, we're talking individuals. Who are the users on that side? What type of investors? Sure. So based on my 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 past, though, I obviously originally originally we started out and as as a B2B. So we have if you look at our investor our the investors who are on our platform, it's you know large, large I'm not gonna name the names, but some of the largest you you recognize every single one of them, they're the biggest sure. of the big because they we have some special features. One of them is a compliant message system that they obviously are very aware of and they, they, they like this kind of stuff. But over time, we certainly believe that our value proposition is better for individuals mm -hmm. simply because individuals 
have never had access to this type of information more. They don't know how to access this information on the company side. As you know, because you're, you're involved in, in finance as well, especially in your business, that, that wealth management and has exploded and the, the amount of individuals that are active in finance, active in trading, we call them the, the Robin Hood generation. This is a global thing, right? So people think it's only, you know, young people here. Yeah. But I talk to young people in Mexico and Brazil and, and Asia, and, and you see the numbers. The numbers are staggering. The amount of extra, let's say, the, 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 the delta of new brokerage accounts that were open and the amount of trading, it's, 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 it's everywhere. And it's mainly young people. So that's what we think our value proposition on both sides, giving the companies access to these people because they don't, they don't, know, how to, they don't know how to use social media. And right. so we give them a, an easy way to, to, to access these type of investors and the young people who don't have access, all of a sudden they have this, a lot of information that they could use to make investment decisions. So it's more a financial education thing on the investor side. Great, great. And then in terms of how they make the investments, I mean, is that through traditional means or is there some way that you, you facilitate that in addition to just having the information available? Yeah. So right now we're purely information platform where we hold, we're information aggregation platform. So we don't do any trading. We allow people to go. We don't want any conflicts of interest. I think at some point we'll make some ventures, joint ventures with some, have sponsors in a sense, not, not advertisers, but sponsors, which is very important distinction that will come in and be a part of the ecosystem. But for now it's purely informational and educational site. So we don't, we don't have any conflicts of interest at this point. Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting because obviously access to information is a huge advantage. I mean, in this economy, right? I mean, you could argue that that's the biggest differentiator that some folks have over others that, and, and, and why maybe certain of the bigger, you know, funds and institutional investors are highly connected people, whatever, have advantages over other folks. So, you know, the opportunity here is also like a democratization kind of, kind of play, right, on, on access to information. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head, Corey. It, I really got to peel back what you said just a few seconds ago. In terms of the information, this is, this is, the, this is the amazing part. Inter, the internet, right? So what we're, everyone's on today has, has already democratized a lot of this. But the problem is that the, that the, the gatekeepers you know, don't want, that information is not readily accessible, right? So let, let, we, we sort of look at, look at Expedia, for example, or I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to be Expedia or, or Zillow, but these are information aggregators. So they, they aggregate information from sources, a lot of sources, and make it easy for people to make decisions on travel or real estate. We're doing the same thing with corporate information. So people want, and people want to be an, an informed investor. There's so much information right now that is, it's, it's just, it's just too, almost too much. Yeah. But the information you really need, you've got to sift through, right? Because there's, there's so much, there's so much out there, so much noise out there. So what we try to do is create a system where it's much easier or it's easy to access the information you really need for a specific company, specific investment than obviously if you went through and just had to sift through hours and hours of, because there's, there's almost too much data that's the problem. Right, right. So, you know, you mentioned wealth management before, which of course is an area we've got a lot of clients. So you've got your, your bigger institutional investors, you've got individual investors. Are you finding the advisors, the, the wealth managers in the investment advisory industry are, you know, is this a tool that, because obviously, listen, they want research and information to be able to make recommendations or build their portfolios or that kind of stuff and create their models. Is this something you're finding that the industry is starting to use as well? I, I, I can't agree more. And one of the things actually what we 
when we have investors come onto the platform, they they don't pay for the service. We get paid on the back end. Yeah. They have to they have to categorize themselves. So you know, most people come on as individuals. There's obviously institutional investors we, which we which we onboard directly, and then we have a section to pull RIA. So we, so one of the interesting part is, and I think it's and you know this directly, that the wealth management RIA space has grown in importance dramatically, and this is another group of investors that most public companies have no idea how to access. In fact, you've got better statistics than I do, but some there are some independent RIAs and wealth managers who are managing multiple billions. They're, sure. they're, they're big, very, very large. And a lot of them, as they get big, they become asset management firms themselves. Yep. So that if you look at a chart of assets under management over the last 10 years, obviously a lot went to ETFs, et cetera. But if you look at it from a pure category of asset managers, the wealth space, the RAA space has you know doubled or tripled the amount of assets going to, let's say, the people like the Black Rocks, et cetera, pension funds. So the RAA space is very important and it's very, it's a very important because we've, we've made a special distinction so the investors can see who are the RAA. So that's, that's, a, that's an important question. That's great. And listen, I, you know, I wanted to have you on because this is an interesting, you know, play in general, you know, and certainly with the hundreds of RAs that we represent, you know, uh, being our biggest, our biggest niche, you know, I, I see an interesting interplay there as well, you know, to be able to, you know, have access to that kind of, kind of information curated, you know, uh, curated information. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting. And just another point you, you mentioned very distinctly. So, so RAAs historically, right, they were sold, they were sold by the bank's products, right? So they've been told you're a product person, they, they, and I think what you're seeing now, again, because of this, just the movements over the last few years, is they want to be more of they want to be more of, of, of managers. They they want to they want to understand what's going on. They want to they don't want to be shoved product a, a a you know a fund or whatever by whoever's. That's why a lot of them are going independent, as independent, you know. That's right. And so they want this information. And again, it's it's a time thing, right? So you know you can spend you know thirty thousand dollars a year and have a Bloomberg machine. But not many REAs want, so maybe they have one, but if you have five or six people, you don't, you, you don't have the, the, the expense for that. So you need some place to have this information on the companies. That's just not, you can't get it, you know, on, on Yahoo Finance, or the, it's just not available. So we, we offer that kind of platform that you can have that information to make those intelligent decisions. And now you work with various exchanges, right? Yes. We have a number of partners at exchanges. Yes. Yeah. So different. All right. And, and, and so you talk about, I mean, obviously not anything specific, you know, but well, I think we talked a little bit in our, in our pre-call about these joint venture arrangements or strategic arrangements that you have with the various exchanges. So obviously, listen, investment in companies is a, is a deal. And the fact that you're facilitating that through providing, you know, democratizing and curating information is, is, is certainly relevant. And also as a company, you're doing some deals with these exchanges in terms of your strategic alliances or. Joint ventures. Talk a little bit about that at a macro level. Yeah, so it, that's really that's really what separates us from sort of everyone else. I think we have probably more, let's say, partnerships or joint ventures or what have you with exchanges than any other. I mean, we're a small company, but I don't know anyone else out there. And part part of the reason that, that we we got to this was again my background. A lot of these exchanges are actually public companies, so I was an investor. I was a shareholder of some of them. That's how I got the in. And you know these are these are great partners, but the problem is to make a deal to 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 create these joint ventures is very difficult and time consuming because mm -hmm. these are almost like government institutions, right? They're right. they're 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 the gatekeeper, and they're 
you know, these are multi, every single one of them, no matter how big is a multi-billion dollar business. So you've got to, you've got to be very careful. You've got to be, you got to be patient and you've got to solve a problem, right? And that's, that's the key thing because they're not just going to do a venture with a, with some vendor for the sake of doing it. No, it's got to be someone that is solving a problem that their issuers, right? They call them issuers, public companies have. And if you could do that, if you can create something that's different and you can prove that it's going to democratize and bring more activity, right? Because the stock exchanges make money on activity. You can bring more activity, more information means more activity. Then they'll, they'll listen to you, but it's, it's, it's very difficult and, and time consuming and it takes, it takes a lot of perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. And listen, obviously, you know, you mentioned it. I mean, your, your background and prior relationships, obviously, I mean, play a huge role in that. And, and, and listen, we've, we've talked about it on this podcast many, many times. I mean, in any kind of deal, relationships matter, right? You know, I mean, yes, deals are done between companies often, but ultimately they're done between people, right? You know, so I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've leveraged, I mean, in fact, I know from our prior conversations that you've leveraged those relationships and also your reputation and, you know, and, and background and, and the space to be trusted, even though your company is comparatively smaller and, and, and newer, you, you have a long, you have a long track history that people can, can rely upon. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's, I mean, it, it, when people ask me, well, can anyone do what you're doing? I'm like, yeah, theoretically they can, but I don't know if, you know, a couple of, you know, programmers from Silicon Valley will have the, the expertise or even the, 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 the Rolodex to get into places that I can. So I was able to do this in, in a relatively fast, you know, fast way, which is not fast, but fast way relative to somebody else who's the soft, the soft out of, out of the blue somewhere with some, some, uh, you know, website, but it's, it, it's, it took, you know, obviously my, my career, the 30 plus years, you know, helped me. Right. So right. that, that was, that was definitely the key and it continues to be the key as, as we move forward, because if you find out and okay, this, the new CEO of this stock exchange is friends with this guy. Oh, Hey, I'll make an introduction. Yeah, sure. No problem. So it's, 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 it's amazing how many people, you know, indirectly or directly just when you start asking questions. And, and we're talking about these exchanges are all around the world, right? Yeah, these are all right now. We we don't have obviously any relationships. We don't not like we don't have any partnerships with with any of the U.S. exchanges. But every all of you know outside of this region, you know, in, in the in the emerging world, and and obviously in, in Europe, we have two really important you know ventures with the two biggest exchanges there that 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 make sense. I mean, we're going to come to the U.S. first quarter of next year, and we have an we have we have an interesting intro into into one of the big exchanges in the U.S. I won't mention which one, but yeah, yeah I think I think that'll you know that should be very interesting for us next year. Great, and so, you know, you you already mentioned it, but let's drill down a little bit. You know, in any kind of strategic alliance, a joint venture, or you know, a business partnership, so to speak, however it's structured, um, you know, at a fundamental level, there's got to be value on each side, right? You know, so for you, obviously, it's obvious value. The more of these you partner with, the more people. You know, I mean, you know, that's how you ultimately make money is having right more information and more relationships with these exchanges. And you alluded to it, but let's live into it. I mean, basically the folks who are drawn in by the information you provide to then make more investments and there's more activity on the platform. Is that, is that largely what it comes, what it comes down to? Yeah. And it's, it's even more of that. So it's that, that plus the ability to have. So remember when you, you talk about an exchange ecosystem, most people, let's say, if you look at the New York Stock Exchange, there's something like. 3,500 companies listed. Some of them is a lot of them are ETS. Let's say, let's say 
that's like 2,500 actual companies. Mm -hmm. And most people will recognize, you know, maybe a hundred of those companies that are household names. And, you know, if you're an asset manager, you maybe know another hundred. So there's 200 companies, the top 10%, 15% to get all the press. Then there's the middle companies and then there's the small companies. Now the exchange Sure, they they like the fact that you have, you know, if you're a New York Stock Exchange, you've got IBM, you got these big companies. But they're they also know that they've got these these companies that have been almost orphaned. And they're, they're a lot of them are suffering because of the last few years you've had a big, you know, the, the Wall Street has shrunk, right? So Wall Street is not what it was. It, it it's it it's maybe 50% or less of what it was before, yeah. especially when it comes to their power to tell a story. Right, to use research to tell a story. So, so there was a, a regulation that really hurt Wall Street that came out at the, in 2018 called MIFID II, and that basically just destroyed research in the sense that it wasn't worth anything. No one wanted to pay for it. So, when someone doesn't want to pay for a product, it shrinks. So, the amount of coverage out there, broadly speaking, around the globe and here in the U.S., is is shrunk dramatically. So, the, so the exchange looks at it and says, okay, these folks can broaden the amount of 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 coverage and, and give even our small companies the ability to get their inf information out to, you know, potentially thousands or millions of investors. And this is what I think is attractive to these exchanges and, and what we're sort of one of our value propositions. And so what had you, I mean, I, again, I want to, so I keep thinking back to some of the things you said, and I want to drill into them. You know, what had you, you talked about this feeling more like a social network. So talk to me about that sort of strategic decision on why you went, you know, in that direction and then how that sort of really plays out in terms of use, how people use it. Yeah. So as I mentioned, originally looked at, we started as a video company. And one of the things, the, the attractions of video, as you know very well, is that, you know, certainly people, a lot of people are becoming more visual and social media has exploded and everyone is looking at something. People, well, bottom line, people don't read anymore. That's, that's one of the bottom lines. So right. everything needs to be visual. And we found that the current let's say distribution platforms, whether it be at the high end Bloomberg or at the, the you know, the end where it's, it, it serves the, you know, the, the everyone, which is sort of Yahoo Finance, which is, which is the biggest one out there in the, in the world. None of, none of these platforms, including Bloomberg, have the kind of information that investors need to make decisions. The, the information that I used to get, that I, that I, I always get because I was a, this platinum client, you know? And so I said to myself, okay, this inf there's a lot of information. It needs to come out. These companies are desperate to get their story out. They don't have the research anymore. They don't have this access. So they have to have a place, an ecosystem. And so do we, do we try to compete with Bloomberg with some kind of you know, terminal machine database? That doesn't make any sense. Right. And unfortunately, again, you have to know who your target audience is. So if our target audience, okay, forgetting about the big investors, if our target audience is this is this Robin Hood crowd, which is the Delta, which is the ones that are really have the thirst for information. They don't, they don't go to websites. I, don't know, I, have, I have three kids. They're all in that set of range. They don't go to websites. They they're get all their news and everything from social media. So yeah. whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, whether it's TikTok, it doesn't matter, or LinkedIn, this is where the information. So why would I just create a website or a database? It didn't make any sense. I said, okay, let, let, you know, I, I think the, you have to try to build things for the future, and the future continues to be these social platforms. And why? It's just because of the way they're the way they're structured. It's just people the ease of use to go on a social platform, follow who you want to follow, and, and get the information at your fingertips on your. And that's that's basically what I decided to do. So it was a strategic decision more than anything else. 
And talk about that functionality. So how do people actually, you know, use that in the context of, of, you know, of, yeah. Of so it's users. like, like, so it's like any other social platform. So you go in, you look at the sort of 800 plus companies that are on the platform. You can search for, you know, by, by region and you just, you, you follow the companies you want to follow. Yep. And on your, on your newsfeed, all you're going to see is those companies that you follow. So in real time, as they, as the information gets posted, you'll see that. So whether it's a press release on some new acquisition or a financial statement on earnings or a video that the company put out. And what this also does, it encourages the companies to do more things, right? Because they, they get stuck in their ways and they get frustrated and say, well, now you have this audience, give them something more, give them something visual. Yeah. And so that's, that's the whole idea behind the, you know, the visual aspect of it. Like if you went onto our, our, our platform, all of the information come from the companies, we try to put pictures. So everything's visual. It's not just lines on a screen like you'd see in, you know, any kind of sort of high-end database that's out there. Yeah. And then is it the kind of thing where people can comment on, you know, on, or ask questions or interact with those, with those posts by the companies? Yeah, it, we have different levels of different levels of how you so people can post things, um, but the how we set it up is the we give we give the companies all the power because they're the ones that pay us. Got so it. the companies have the the ability to decide who they want to interact with, and they do all the posting. So it's really a, an in, so it's not in, in a sense it's a it's a we're going to add more features, but right now it's sort of a one way one way thing where you're. You come in as an investor, you're absorbing information that the company's posting. And, gotcha. and if you're a larger institution and companies follow you, you follow them back, and now you can get into this compliant sort of direct message aspect. And th- but the, we give the companies a the power. If they want to chat with 3,000 people, so be it. Right. But right now, the main means is this compliant, you know, where compliance is important often in these situations because... <laughs> You know, especially for public companies, right? In terms of what they they can't say, they can't. Well, say, it's actually more. It's actually more, Corey. And you know this as well because of your clients. So if you're any, if you're in in the finance industry, and this is whether it's whether you're an RIA, whether you're a Wall Street trader, or a portfolio manager, you are you're under this compliance umbrella that all of your communications have to be archived, right? That's a yep. law. And you see, I mean, there was an article today about in, in, the, in the Wall Street Journal about these, these massive amounts of, 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 of lawsuits that have come out. So these companies, large companies, whether it's Morgan Stanley or BlackRock, they have no, to- there's no tolerance. If they catch you using a non-compliant, you are fired no matter who you are. You're, you're immediately fired That's right. because of, of the legal ramifications. So whether it's an RIA, whether it's, a, it's an asset manager, a Wall Street bank, any of your communications, whether it's a public company or a customer, has to be archived, has to be, you know, compliance, has to have, you know, a, a record of it. So there's nothing out there that can that connects companies and investors because investors primarily use things like Bloomberg and and Bloomberg, very, very few companies, if any, have a Bloomberg machine because it's just too expensive. There's no reason for it. Yeah. So there's no there's no direct message. Everything's through email. And one of the problems with email, I'll go into this rant about email. Email is becoming obsolete. It, yep. it, was a, it was a great tool when it first came out and it has been. But if you think about over the last few years, all the problems with hacks and, and ransomware, you know, what, no, matter what, no matter what company, no matter how big the company is, you have to have, especially if you have you know, hundreds of employees, you've got to have email filters. You've got to make sure because 90% of these hacks come through a, an employee 
who clicks a link they shouldn't have clicked, and now yep. the system's hacked. Yep. And and there there's you, you can go to the State Department data. There, there there's hacks constantly. Every day there's hundreds of hacks, and it's it's a real problem. So companies just restrict, and they and they spam tons of email, and public companies around the world, that's, the, that's their number one way of distribution is, is through email, especially with large investors. So there's a problem there. It's ancient. And, and so email is, is, is a dying communication system in effect for this type of data. So that's why one of the reasons, another reason why we created this, because it's, you know, it's, it's as easy to get this information because you're not getting it through the regular PR news wires and email. It's just not getting through. Got it. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com assessment. That's coreykupfer.com assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right, so let's talk about, you know, your journey with creating this company. You know, have you self-financed it? Have you raised capital? Are you thinking about raising capital? What's what's the plan there? Anything you obviously, whatever you feel comfortable disclosing. So so initially I, I committed all the, the bad mistakes that, that hit entrepreneur. I funded it myself uh-huh. and I funded it myself for quite a while. At the beginning of this year, I did take in some capital, some seed capital. So that was good, got us going. And we're at the point where next year we're going to do another round of capital because of our growth. Yeah. So, so I initially did fund it myself, bootstrapped it myself. And then we had some, you know, video revenues, et cetera, which helped. And then obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning of this year, we closed on a small round, which gave us some, gave us a boost. And now we're we'll probably need to have some funding at the first quarter next year. Well, listen, I, I mean, you made it, you, you sort of laughed at it, but you know, I, I don't, I don't think, and I, I don't, I, I don't know that you really believe that that's definitely a mistake to, I mean, listen, the advantage of self-funding, obviously more risk, bootstrapping, more headaches, whatever. At the same time, you get to get some momentum and build it to the point where then when you raise capital, you, you know, you're not giving away as much because, you know, you've, you've created something, right? Versus funding something from the start. So there are, there are advantages of doing that bootstrapping first, certainly for the founders in terms of the valuation they get on, on when they do raise capital. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it also helps when you speak to someone, when they hear that you funded it, you know, they, yep. you know, you have a lot of skin in the game, which I do. So I that, that also, but look at the end, you know, funding capital raising in this, this sort of startup ecosystem is, is tough. It's a, it's a crapshoot. I mean, I, I was involved in hundreds of deals throughout my career and all over the world. And I, you know, I, I could safely say I probably know valuation better than any VC out there because that's yep. that was my life. And so, but but in the VC world, valuation is is, is I don't even know how they how they determine it. It's right. This is a new a new world for me, and it's 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 interesting, but it's it's definitely different for sure. So, in all the deals that you you know you mentioned all the deals that you did you know in in your prior version lives, like what what are some of the lessons you got out of those that you that you can apply to whether it's your raising of capital in the future or whether it's your strategic alliances with the stock exchanges, your deals going forward. What what are some of the lessons you learned maybe on the positive side, or we all learn sometimes we learn the most through our mistakes or other people's mistakes. 
No, I think two, two things. Number one, I think that credibility and your and your character are very important. I think people respect that. So whether you're whether as you mentioned these deals that are the, these these joint ventures that I that was able to get, it was all based on my past, my my reputation. The money I raised in the beginning was was based on my reputation. So I think you know if young people are watching this podcast and if you're building a, a business from scratch and you're, or you're thinking about sometime in the future. You know, you have to worry about your character. When you're out there in the business world, you got to make sure you're you're presenting yourself in the proper manner because it may it may come back to bite you ten years from now if it doesn't. And it just and then there's a persistence. You know, every every I'm not going to compare myself, but if you look at you look at the great startups out there, they weren't funded right away. There were very few that people just jumped to get money. I mean, whether it's Airbnb, you read the stories. I mean, these these guys said, you know, years they just they couldn't get any traction. All of a sudden, boom! It, it overnight it happened, and it's persistence, right? So they, you know, like everything else, you you you've you've got to believe in what you do. And I always say this to people because I I read sometimes about these these sort of coaches that are out there, these uh, corporate coaches say, well, you got to have a plan B because I have no plan B, right? So yeah. for, I mean, I've I have a different sort of background than most, but I don't have a plan B. I mean, this doesn't work. It doesn't work. But I'm I have no, I'm, there's no, no pivot. Well, there is a pivot for me in terms of we already did pivot, but there's no plan B. And then yeah. flexibility, as I mentioned, just, just a minute. So pivoting, we, you know, we had a video business, obviously, you know, before the pandemic, we started in 2017. I mean, people were like, whoa, video, like nobody was doing video meetings and very few people. Zoom wasn't even, when I started, Zoom was, was a, was a startup company that had, you know, like five employees. Right. right. And yeah. All of a sudden, you know, you know, within a few years, it exploded, right? And but we we pivoted, right? People say, "Why did you pivot?" You're in the because I knew that video was video was going to stay around, but it was going to be a commoditized sort of business, right? So, yeah. like, why compete in in a commoditized business? So we wanted to always do value added business. We still do video production. We still produce videos for companies and and RIAs and all these other things. And as I mentioned to you the last time, but you know, flexibility, you've got to, you've got to see what you, you know, you've got to be focused, persistent. And if you have to pivot and be flexible, flexible to do it. And those are the, those are the key things I've learned. Not that I've, not that I could say we've turned the corner on this company, but just all, you know, based on my years of experience, this is, you know, what I think you really have to be focused on. It's funny. You talk about a plan B and so in so many cases when there's wisdom, like you have to have a plan B, there's always the opposite wisdom, right? You know, that's out there as well. And one of the stories that goes around a lot of the entrepreneurial communities that I'm in, entrepreneurs organizations, things like that, is about Cortez and burning the boats, right? You know, uh, and 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 that's the opposite view. The the view is no, you you burn the boats, you're all in, you're not going, you know, you're not going back, and that's what you need to do. So, you know, I'm always if anybody's sort of put off by some supposed, you know, wisdom in the in the entrepreneurial business space, that if you search hard enough, you can usually find a wisdom on the other side of that you if you want to rely upon it. So you're in a you're in a Cortez burning the boats. Hundred percent. I and I think you know, if you look back, that's how you have to be. If you're not a hundred you know, hundred and one percent, and I say hundred and one percent, if you're not more than hundred percent one committed, when because here's the problem. Every day I wake up. I always like, oh my God, what am I going to do? There's always, you know, you, you wake up and you say, oh man, this is tough. Like, this is really, it, it is the toughest thing I've ever done. And, you know, there's no money in, in the beginning and you're like, you're stressing about money yeah. and this and that. And if you're not hundred percent committed, those doubts will sink in deep. And over time, 
those doubts will sink so so that you'll just be start questioning it and then then it's over so you have to be so committed that you can you can as as those doubts come to you and they they come to everybody you question everything oh, yeah. every day like, oh my god what did i do this for and you've got to be able to fight that and the only way to fight it is if you're like saying wait a minute this and i am you know be committed so you you can think about it clearly and say okay we have this problem here let's go here you know we can't get it this way let's try this way and that's that's the key to it because it, again you can't you won't be able to think straight and clearly if you have the doubts yeah, listen, no, no question about it. And one of the things we often talk about on this podcast is about, you know, mindset shifts. And there's, there's a mindset of an entrepreneur, there's a mindset of a deal maker. And that's a lot of what you're talking about here, right? Listen, one of my favorite expressions when, you know, us entrepreneurs hit those challenging times or whatever is, hey, if it were easy, everybody else would do it, right? So, you know, and I really, I really do believe that there's something yeah. that those of us who are true entrepreneurs have that have us go forward despite those ups and downs and risks and needs to pivot and and the fact that there is no plan B and that there are times where we're wondering where the next dollar is going to come from in the beginning and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and it was interesting. I actually, it's funny. I usually, I just happened to do a pre-call for the podcast with a guy named uh, Taraj Parang, who's going to be, it'll probably be months and months later because he hasn't, he's just about to book his, uh, we haven't even sent him a scheduling link yet. So for listeners, you know, it will be down the line, but we expect to have him on. The reason I raise it is because one of the many things that he has is a is a pre-seed fund and i just happened to ask him you know we were talking just in the in, in a pre-call just to get to know each other about it a little bit and you know and and you know his criteria is that the, and his, his partners and they have the latest funds a 500 million dollar fund so that you know they have real money and they invest in the early stage right pre-seed and he said you know the biggest thing for us is commitment and passion of the entrepreneurs he said he said at the stage we invest what else is there right he says what they got a business plan the odds of that business plan manifesting anywhere near what they have on that paper, we all know is you know, like has pretty much never happened in the history of business plans or you know or decks. Like no, nobody's ever put together a business plan or a deck and it works out exactly that way in that time period. It just doesn't happen. I mean, the the, the pivoting is not the exception; it's the rule. So it's funny that it, it sort of ties into what you're saying. I mean, that's basically what they make their their investment decisions on, right? What else is there? Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, you know, I, I again, we ha I have this love-hate relationship with VCs, but, you know, because I just, because of what I've done in the past as an investor, but I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, if I, if I was sitting on the other side, it would be the person, right? Because you don't have a company to analyze. You don't have earnings. You don't have revenue. You don't, well, you don't have a lot of revenue. You've got some revenue. And so you've got to say, okay, if I'm going to project into the future, Yep. Right, of a fast-growing company, it's going to be who's leading that company, right? Who has the passion? Who has the the expertise, so that when a problem comes, they can solve that problem, right? So you're look. I hate to bring this up, but you're seeing that now. I mean, you look at this this whole FTX thing. You know, just yep. brings to bear what a lot of people have been saying, not just about crypto in a sense, but forgetting about the 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 asset class. It's just how did all these supposed smart people get it wrong? Because they invested with this dude, right? This, yep. this this gentleman, this kid. They didn't. I mean, whether they believed in crypto or not, it, it, it was it was too early in the game, and the numbers were too ridiculous. So they they believe this kid, and you scratch your head, especially those of us who, who I mean, I I remember the Mount Gox situation in 2014. How many people do? I mean, this was Mount Gox had 70 percent of the the Bitcoin trading at the time. This is this is bigger than FTX in terms of relatively. And this that was a Bitcoin went down to like 
you know, 15 cents. I wish I would have loaded up on it then, but I didn't. But I remember that, right? So, yep. you know, you, you have to you, you be very skeptical when you meet people like this. But how did this kid convince all of these supposed smart money people? You know, yeah. it's, it's because I think the, the, the VC mindset is different. If this kid was, let's say, all of a sudden became a CEO of a public company or he tried to go public in an IPO, I mean, it would, it would never, it would never, never happen because you know, seasoned portfolio managers would have just ripped them apart. It would, it would have died in the vine, you know, and, and, but in the VC land, it's a different animal. Again, I, I don't want to, you know, say anything bad about anyone, but you have to, you have to scratch your head, you know. No, listen, and, and there, there are other examples. I mean, how about Theranos, right? You know, and, you know, the recent convictions on that. I mean, how much money she was able to raise and, 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 you know, and on, on smoke and mirrors. Um, but yeah, but you know, listen, it's, it's interesting. At a little later stage, the VCs will always talk about, you know, here management team, right? They're investing in a management team. But when you're talking about seed and pre-seed, they're even pre-management, you know, having really a built-out management team. So it does come down to the founder or founders, and maybe they got another key person or they don't, but there's not even a management team yet, right? I mean, they, they got to be inspired by the idea and then and then think, hey, I got, I got the person not necessarily that's going to implement the plan they have now, but that's going to figure it out along the way as they hit roadblocks and figure out and the market tells them different things and, and things shift and pivot, you know? So yeah, no question about it. No question about exactly. it. Exactly. Good stuff. Well, listen, if people want to find out more about you and the company and the and, and you know and, and everything you do and what's the best place for them to go? They can go on the Apple Store or Google Play and look for Bron or B-R-O-N or just Bron Invested Network, but Bron should be good enough. And download our app. It's free. Start checking out all the companies. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Easy enough, right? That's it's easy. for that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. My final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people from oppression around the world to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? And freedom is everything. I mean, you know, from a business standpoint, even though let's say I am, you know, right now I'm definitely an entrepreneur, but because of the, what I'm doing now with my startup, but I was even through my career. I was always somebody who had positions in Wall Street and then on the buy side where, you know, my compensation was based on my returns. What, you know, we call it in the old days, eat what you kill, right? So yep. I've always had that freedom that I never had anyone determining who my, what my bonus was or, you know, it was, it was like, okay, if, you, if your returns were great, you got paid very well. If your returns were crap, you didn't get paid, didn't get paid crap. That's it. And that's how I've always been. So it prepared me for today what i'm doing now because i don't have the i don't have the stress because i've always worked under you know a, a very you know decades under this and under this thing where if you know if i don't do well i don't get paid if i do well i'm going to get paid very very well now most people in life don't have those kind of jobs right it's, yep. it's tough but that's what freedom means to me it always gives you sort of the a peace of mind and a, and a kind of no, no like no give a shit attitude like I don't care because, you know, it's whatever I do is, is me. It's not, you're not determining my bonus. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what freedom really is in, in a, in a business sense, right. Is, is making your own way. And uh, I think interesting enough, I think that this younger generation, even though I don't like some of their, some of their business practices, they have this, this thirst for freedom. They, they don't want to be in a nine to five job. They want to be 
They want to have this, and there's an interesting term they use called passive income. They want to have this passive income to allow themselves to travel. And now you and I, passive income is something totally different, but they they call it passive income because they want to travel. They want to do things. They don't want to be stuck in an office with a boss nine to five. They want to work from home. Now they have other things that are I don't have I don't really like, but overall this 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 you know I I I like this new generation because they do mm-hmm. have. I mean, they're not tough. I hate to say that. They're not really that tough, but they have this entrepreneurial mindset. They want freedom. They want, they want their freedom. Right. And that's, that's really, that's really good. Yeah. I mean, the, the, like the digital nomad life. I mean, I know so many, I mean, in fact, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll shout out to, to, you know, the, the, the company that uh, markets this podcast for me and does all my social work, my marketing company, which is the Hetty Society run by Care Parish, you know. I mean, a distributed team all around the world, uh, you know, digital, you know, every time I talk to Kara, she's in some city somewhere in the world, but she's got her computer with her and, you know, and, and the work gets done and they do a great job, right? It's a whole different, different lifestyle. That's yeah. And I agree with you. The, I mean, freedom and is part of the ethos of, of the younger generation. You know, I mean, there's a joke, you know, I, I, I know with some people who do, I know some speakers talk about like the intergenerational stuff and how you deal with different generations at, at work. But I, I remember. You know, one of the things somebody said, which really resonated with me, like in my grandfather's generation, if you said to them, hey, you did a great job, we're giving you some extra time off, they'd be like, what, what did I do wrong? What did you fire me? Like, what, what do you mean extra time off? Like, you know, give me some extra money, but like, I'm not like more time, like, you know, you know, whereas now there's a lot of studies that show that people would love to have, yeah, more time off than more pay if as a reward. So things definitely evolve and change, but yeah, but I, but I love that. I mean, I love that. I do love that also about this younger generation is that. They are, you know, there is a commitment to, to, you know, to more freedom out of the, the corporate world. And as somebody who came up, you know, in big and big law firm, big law in New York City, where it was very the opposite, I can, I can, I can see why they desire that. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 something that is, you know, you, you can see that if that's the future, that's a good future, right? Because that's you know, people want that kind of a mindset. Now, there's again pros and cons to it, but. I think the, the 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 pros outweigh the cons in a sense because people that want freedom will th- think over time think differently than people who just want to sit. You know, something. Look, I'm not going to, you know, sit and and you know, people that work, you know, at, for the for 30 years for the same company. That's amazing. I don't know how they do it, but it's it's incredible. Yeah, and they retire and they live well. That's fine. You know, we when we talk about freedom in that in this context of business. That's the the ultimate freedom is to be free of, of, of a boss and be free of, of this of sort of worry, you know, because if you work for a company for a long period of time, you're always concerned. Like you are saying, oh, this, like, well, he doesn't want me to, cause he, is he going to fire me or whatever? But if you, if you have that, you know, that, that freedom to have, you know, gigs on the side, a lot of these kids, they went to work two or three jobs, you know, then mm-hmm. you, know, you don't have to, you don't stress as much. And maybe your, your life is a little more calm than because business is stressful. The corporate yep. world is stressful. Love it. Tom Samuelson, thank you so much for being a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thank you, Corey. It was, uh, was fantastic. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the Deal Quest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, 
but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.